This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, where we travel the Midwest, going to museums and historic sites, talking to experts and old friends who have great stories to tell. Today, I'm headed to Topeka, Kansas, to the unlikely and unbelievable Evil Knievel Museum at historic Harley-Davidson. But before I get there, let me jump into giving you a little history on Evil Knievel. Robert Craig Knievel was born in 1938 in Butte, Montana. Raised by his grandparents, he was a handful right from the start. At the age of eight, he went to a Joey Chitwood auto daredevil show in which later Evil gave Chitwood credit for his career choice. Butte was a mining town full of rugged men and women. Evil was a miner and drove an earth mover. One night, he drove that earth mover into Butte, hit a power pole, and left the city in the dark. Robert Knievel saw his fair share of local jail cells, and that's where one night he received his famous nickname of Evil. But Evil was a multifaceted man with convictions and conscience. He hiked from Butte, Montana to Washington, D.C., to protest calling or the selective slaughter of local elk. His word was his bond, and that attribute would follow him throughout his life. After his stint in the Army in the 50s, Evil would take up, you bet, motorcycle riding, which would develop into him becoming the world's greatest daredevil. Evil fulfilled his American dream by becoming an American icon. So let us go now to Topeka and talk with my friend Mike, who too idolizes evil and has some good lore also. This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore. As promised, I'm in Topeka, Kansas at the Evil Knievel Museum with my friend... Mike Patterson. Mike, thank you very much for doing this. I've done a lot of these uh, podcasts, and let me tell you, I go to a lot of different museums that kind of don't match where they are. A lot of little cities with beautiful, outstanding museums, and I'm not slamming Topeka. I'm complimenting you on what you've got here. It is incredible, and I will call it (laughs) Disney-esque. How did you get started, and what are we doing here? Well, it is an honor for us to have the Evil Knievel Museum here in Topeka, Kansas, and at my family's Harley-Davidson dealership um, that uh, my family's had for 73 years. So it, it's, uh, for me, every day it's kind of surreal, you know, to, to have all the items here, and um, it's kind of a, a story that is not something that was expected. It wasn't a strategy by us. It wasn't planned, it just kind of happened. And, uh, you know, it really goes back a lot further than just Evil Knievel Museum opening about five years ago. Um, it goes back to my grandfather getting in the business in, in uh, 1926. Um, he was 16 years old and he uh, was a very good bicycle rider. Um, he could ride a unicycle, he had really good balance. And uh, he, was, he lived in Grand Junction, Colorado. 
So a, uh, a bicycle company um, was traveling around the U.S. and doing these contests, and they came to Grand Junction and put this contest on um, in downtown. Uh, so we have newspaper clippings from that day, and there was over a 1,000 people lining the streets to see this contest. So my grandfather entered the plank ride. And the plank ride was a four-inch plank that they laid down the middle of the street in downtown. And you had to ride your bike on it and not fall off. So uh, he, was, he thought this was going to be his event. So he rode and went back and forth on the plank, didn't fall off, won the contest, not only won the contest, but set a world record for plank riding that day. He rode over two miles without falling off the plank. Wow, that is balance. Very good balance. So um, he got a he got a silver uh, medal and a gold watch, and they promised him a new bicycle, but he never got that. <laughs> but he got the world record that he beat out some kid from uh, Ontario, California, and uh, he kind of became a bicycle celebrity. So what happened is the bicycle shop owner Porter Carson there in Grand Junction from Carson's Bicycles um, hired my grandfather to um, work at the work at the uh, the dealership. Well, what a lot of uh, uh, bicycle stores ended up doing in the 20s was they turned into motorcycle shops. Mm-hmm. And the next year, Carson's took on Harley-Davidson motorcycles. So he embraced that, and that became his life, was motorcycles. And he worked in uh, Carson's from 1926 to 1949 and was able to buy the dealership here in Topeka in 1949. So... Our family's been here in Topeka for 73 years since then. Um, I'm third generation, and I'm you know I'm here because of my grandfather uh, winning a bicycle contest in 1926, which in, is in Colorado. That's, in Colorado, that's that's, that's good. Never, lore, that's good lore right there. Yeah, you never know what one little event in life is gonna send the generations you know in another direction, and you know who knows what would happen if he wouldn't have won that contest. I know we wouldn't be sitting here talking today. <laughs> well, uh, tell us, uh, what's the evil Knievel connection? So, with that history in our dealership, and w- the name of our dealership is Historic Harley-Davidson, um, so we really embrace that. Uh, we're one of the uh, top 10 dealerships in the country that's that's still owned by the same family as far as length of time. So, one of the things we do is uh, we do restorations on, on vintage Harley-Davidson's, which most dealerships don't touch older bikes, but we'll touch anything that has Harley Davidson on the on the on the fuel tank. So we uh, we've developed a reputation of doing um, uh, restoration work, and it's kind of brought us national attention and a lot of customers nationally. And actually, we even have our first international customer working on right now from Australia. So they bring our, their bikes to us from all over, and we restore them back to original condition. Um, we got a call about seven years ago now from uh, the family of Jerry Lee Lewis, the rock and roll legend. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been given a bike in 1958 um, by Harley Davidson because he was an up-and-comer. And I think you could describe him and how they viewed him as maybe like a social influencer, you know, of today. You, you bet. You know, so he, they gave him a bike and uh, he kept it, you know, for all these years. And the family... Um, wanted to have it restored and they found us called us and uh, we drove to Memphis and visited his house and we went into his garage to find the bike and 
learned that it had been disassembled and it was in sacks, boxes, drawers. <laughs> um, it was just spread all throughout this garage that had a whole bunch of other stuff in it too. And uh, Bruce Zimmerman and I, uh, we worked for about two hours in there um, gathering up all the parts. We put it in our van. We got to go inside and, and meet um, Jerry Lee and had tea with him in his wood-paneled living room with the gold records on the wall. It was very surreal. And uh, he told us we better do a good job on his bike. And um, he looked at us and kind of pointed at us when he said it to us. So <laughs> it was fun uh, to meet him. And we brought the bike back, or the parts anyway, in buckets. And we spread it out on the floor and took a picture of it, um, all these pieces. So we, we uh, worked on this bike for quite a while, got it back together, pretty much to museum quality. Got it back to Jerry Lee. He was thrilled. His caretaker said that was the happiest they had seen him in all the time they worked for him. He put the bike in his living room. Um, he was so excited about it. And the family made a decision a year or two later to, uh, to sell it. Um, and they worked a deal with Meekum Auctions, which is a national auction company that's on TV. And... Uh, um, they they promoted it heavily for about six months before they um, before they sold it. It was on uh, uh, live and we watched it here at the dealership, taking bets on how much it would go for. So they started the auction and uh, it got up a ways and then they brought Jerry Lee out with a piano and he played Great Balls of Fire and then they restarted the auction <laughs> again and it went up to three hundred eighty five thousand dollars and sold. Um, so it was a top 20 motorcycle of all time at that point, and uh, family was thrilled. And, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't just because of the restoration. It was because it was his bike, but it was perfect. So everybody was happy. Um, so that story brings us to the evil connection. All right. Um, so the, the family was working with a collector. Um, his name was Lathan McKay, and Lathan was from Austin, Texas, um, he's a younger guy. He was not around when Evil was around, but he was very intrigued by him. And Latham was a uh, professional skateboarder. Um, he'd done some acting, some movie script work, and uh, just had this uh, uh, attraction to Evil and bought a set of leathers, and it just kind of blossomed from there. And he, I would say he kind of got addicted to buying Evil Knievel stuff and became the man around and became known as the leading Evil Knievel collector in the world. Well, one of the items that he purchased um, was Evil's Mack truck and trailer, uh, Big Red. It's a Mack semi with a full full trailer on the back. What sort of shape was it in? So it was in um, really, really bad shape. Um, it Like to the point where the... Uh, um, it had been sitting in Florida, and it had a lot of rusting and corrosion. And uh, we like to say that the the cab had more sky than actual metal in it. It was that <laughs> rust. I mean, it was holes right. um, that was rusted out. And uh, but he, you know, it was evils, and it was a big deal for evil um, during that time. So uh, Lathan purchased it. Um, it was on actually a couple of TV shows, uh, um, Shipping Wars. They shipped it from. Uh, Florida up to North Carolina, and then they, they took it up to Elizabethtown, New Jersey, to have it restored. Well, they looked. They, it was a it was a restoration company for 
semis. And they just they looked at it for about a year and never touched it. And Lathan was frustrated. And he had made this connection with the Lewis family. And they were kind of working in a little bit of business together. Um, so the Lewis family said, hey, we know these guys that do restoration work. Well, let's call them and see who they might know that can, that can take this job. So I got the call from uh, the Lewis family, and uh, they told me about this. And I'm a kid that grew up in the 70s, you know, and I grew up in the Harley-Davidson business. So evil was a big part of my life. And I hadn't thought about him in a long time, you know, uh, wasn't on my radar at all. But when they said Evil Knievel, my ears really perked up. And they said, uh, you know, we got this Mack truck and we want to have it restored. We know you guys do motorcycles, but do you know anybody that can do Mack trucks, you know, that's that, that, that we could, uh, you got a referral for us. And uh, I just kind of blurted out, um, we do Mack truck restorations. <laughs> and this is your first one. Well, yeah, and I've never even been in a Mack truck, you know. So uh, uh, it was kind of a, we took a flyer, you know, and, and we were definitely over our heads. But, you know, restoration work is restoration work. And we knew that it was a bigger project than a motorcycle. And um, we had all the competent people, you know, to do this. Plus, we needed to bring some other people aboard that um, were Mack experts and, uh, you know, body, could do body work and, um, so I uh, brought on a couple of local guys, Chuck Stover and Todd Williams, as kind of lead uh, contractors. Um, and uh, in the end, on this project, there was over 200 people or businesses that had a hand in restoring this Mack truck. So, um, you know, we were doing it as a job. You know, it was just a, the coolest restoration job that we could ever imagine. And uh, we'd always done motorcycles. We'd done a few other things, too. Um, some trucks and things, but um, nothing like this. And uh, as we were going through the process, we, we met Lathan. Um, we kind of started helping him with some of his other items. Um, he had some bikes and we wanted to get some things fixed on them. And he also didn't have a good place to store them in Texas. So we brought up a lot of his items here. And if you've ever seen our building, it's a great big stone building with a huge basement and um, it actually is almost a bomb shelter. Um, so we brought a lot of the items up here and stored them for him. It's a WPA built uh, limestone building. It's incredible looking also. Yeah, it was built in 1930s right after the Depression. Yeah, WPA project. Um, and uh, yeah, they didn't. They don't build them like this anymore. No. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big... Kansas limestone. It is. It is. Uh, um, so we... Uh, we, we got to know Lathan, um, started talking about what he was going to do with the semi, you know, where was he even going to store it? Um, and the idea came about that, hey, maybe we could add on to our dealership and have a little garage so people could come see the, the truck. That kind of, it then kind of evolved into, uh, you know, I asked Lathan, well, where's the Evil Knievel Museum at? You know, where is it? And he said, well, there isn't one. I'm like, wow. Um, well, he's from Montana. Butte, Montana doesn't have anything for evil? No. Um, about half the people love evil in Butte, and about half the people um, dislike him. Um, so it's they never really got around to it. And I'll tell you a story um, about Butte, too, since we opened it. But um, I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, we said to Lathan, hey, well, why don't we just build the Evil Knievel Museum here? Um and I thought it meant to be a great thing to add on to our dealership. And he said, yeah, let's do it. 
So that's just kind of how it happened. I mean, it wasn't, there was no strategic plan. Even when we got the truck, it wasn't part of the idea. It was just, um, it evolved through that process and getting to know Lathan and him getting to know us. And, um, you know, then the big trick was convincing the Knievel family that this is where the Evil Knievel Museum should be. Um, because they had most of the items. They, they actually didn't. Um, they do have items, um, and we don't really have any of their items in our, in our museum. Uh, we, uh, once we decided to, to do this here, uh, Lathan and I and, and some others went out and we scoured the country. He knew where a lot of things were, and we acquired a lot more items. And we, we did work with the family and acquired a few things from them. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, this is not at this point part of the Knievel's um, um, collection. They do have some things. So, yeah, we just put this idea together. Um, it just started evolving and, um, you know, the first ideas of the museum weren't like what it, it is now, but as we got into it, we started to realize that, you know, this is a piece of American history and pop culture, and it's gonna be the only one, so we better do it right. Did it surprise you how popular evil still was in people's mind? It did. It did. Um, I think if we would have done this 20 years ago, it probably wouldn't have been as interesting. But it's just old enough where the historical value of him is kind of growing, um, where it really wasn't 20 years ago. Um, but now people of the, the people that were around in the 70s, you know, they look back at that time and it, um, you know, it's it's maybe not as complicated of a time in the 70s as it is now and childhoods and you know you remember the the stunt toy and things like that and yeah it's been surprising well uh, there, there are other people that have tried to become daredevils and get, get their name out there but nobody evil was really first and evil is iconic and that's what people remember I remember as a little kid and I went, you know, going to Vegas. You you look where those fountains are. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, being a kid in the 70s and having a guy like Evil Knievel, you know, there isn't anybody like that now. Right. You know, and I'm not sure there can be, you know, with social media these days. Um, you just, you know, you're not going to come around and have any kind of staying power. Evil was real for about 10 years. He had about a good 10, solid 10-year career. Um, but I don't think that would be possible these days. So we were kind of lucky, you know, to be kids in the 70s and and have a really a superhero, you know. A, a, a fact that uh, isn't well-known, but Evil was the uh, first action figure, you know, like a Batman or a Captain America or... Superman, but he was the first action figure that was a real person. Hmm. Uh, you know, so it, everybody else had been a comic book character. What toy company promoted that? Um, well, Ideal was his was right. his main toy company. You know that that he was uh, licensed by, and um, that's where Evil made all his money. That by the is way. interesting. Yeah, was was through. All well, that. he promoted himself very well, but he was kind of known for his crashes. So I've got Danny. He had 168 jumps. And he crashed 19 times. Right. So he's not only known for the crashes, but the injuries that he that happened to his body. 
which are incredible, and you show that very well downstairs. That's an incredible display too, where you have almost a x-ray see-through on different bones that he has uh, broken, but... Uh, yeah, we do, we have over 40 x-rays um, from him, so we've incorporated into an interactive display where you can move your finger around on the screen and expose the, the broken bones, and then you can look at the, you can either look at the x-rays, you can look at the video or the uh, pictures that caused the, the broken bones, the crash, um, what what day it was, where it was at, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's just kind of, one of one of the unique, well-put-together items you have here. Thank I mean, you. It's, uh, it's People are very intrigued by the broken bones, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> that display is called Bad to the Bones, and, and it's a lot of fun uh, because that is, that's, that's you're, you're right. The crashes are really, that's really what made him famous. That's, a, that's NASCAR and a lot of other things people right. want to see. Yeah, you know, and I think it's, you know, the fact that he crashed, but it's also, you know, how ugly the crashes were. You know, you think about the Caesars Palace crash or Wembley. And and then he jumped again, you know, after that. Well, so that's what kind of separates him and kind of vaulted evil to that superhero status because most normal human beings after crashing like that would be the end of it, you know. Like Wembley, he jumps over the uh, London buses and crashes, breaks his pelvis, but still walks out. And then, and then days later, you hear his pelvis was broken. You go, gosh, that guy, did he, what do you think his tolerance of pain was? Yeah, the pelvis, among other things, were broken too. But yeah, he did say, um, and, and there was not the only jump he did that. Um, I can only think of a couple where he went out on a stretcher. He would... Um, usually address the crowd, even if he had crashed, and usually would get himself up to back up to the top of the jump, um, whether he needed help or what, and he would address the crowd with all his injuries and thank them for coming. And, um, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty commendable. Um, he knew his audience, and um, he didn't just crash and then go away unseen. Well, know, and that. he kept a, his word is his bond. He was... Uh, very much felt that way, kind of a Western. If you give your word to do something, I'll be here and I'll be waving to you at the end and all. He wanted to give people their their money's worth. You're so right. And, you know, a, a testament to that is the Wembley jump. You know, he showed up in Wembley and he said he was going to jump 13 buses. Well, what he found was the London buses were a little bit bigger than the, uh, the Kings Island buses. And they were double-deckers, too. Mm -hmm. So they had to build a, um, a, an entry uh, ramp that was about four foot high so his ramps would work to jump over the buses, but they were also longer. It was also a longer jump than he expected. And when he walked in, he was with Frank Gifford from ABC Wild World Sports. Mm -hmm. And he told Frank, he goes, I don't have the, the, the room nor the proper gearing on the bike to make 13 to, to get, the, get the speed. To get the speed to, to, to get across there. Now, there and were like 80,000 people in Wembley Stadium that day. There were. There were. So he, Frank said, well, why don't you just take a bus out? You know, I mean, just jump 12. And he said, no, I, I said I'm jumping 13. I'm jumping 13. So he got to the jump, that, that jump that day, and he got to the, um, lined up at the top of the ski ramp that he came down out of the stands, and he knew he wasn't going to make it. You know, mm. that, you know, he knew he was going to crash. He, he hit the 13th. 
he did and he bounced um and it was an ugly ugly crash um but you know to your point um his word was i'm going to jump 13 buses and if it you know breaks my bones um that's what i said i'm going to do and that's what he did was that his first international jump and did that jump and or crash make him the international star he became um it was uh, overseas he had jumped in canada prior to Mm -hmm. that in toronto um so he he that was right before snake river was the the toronto jump Um, but yeah he was uh he he's huge in england i mean in fact um we've had uh countless people fly in from england to Kansas City just to, to come, come over here. to yeah just to come here which is very humbling um and I, I'm happy they leave happy too that oh. they that they what they've seen so that means a lot you know and well they go back in marketing there's nothing like word of mouth yeah I mean it and that's a lot of what the museum's been and our customer reviews and um that's a lot of what drives the business too is we have five-star reviews on all of our channels so um, it's a pretty easy subject matter to make cool. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, for a museum, I, I have to say. Uh, our team did a great job putting this place together, but when you have the artifacts that we have and the stories and just the, the personality of Evil Knievel, um, putting in a museum like this is a is really fun. Well, really uh, fun. You, you've got, obviously, his motorcycles, but speaking of his personality which kind of matches, you have his jumpsuits, which match his personality. I mean, nobody else could have gotten away with a jumpsuit looking like that. He wore a cape. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) there's, you got to be a superhero to wear a cape. Um, Yeah, the the suits are just, they're amazing. Uh, I think we have six of his suits in the museum, um, you know, different different points in time. um, So that, you know, that, we always try to match up um, what suit he jumped, used at, at what jump, and we've got him in different displays. But helmets too, they they're they're really cool pieces to have um, because uh, we've got the Wembley helmet, we've got the Caesar's Palace helmet, and they've got the scratches, you know, from wow. the Wembley floor or the parking lot at Caesar's, you know, all over him, and you know, they're substantial. And you've got photography throughout this building. And I walked in and was with uh, your colleague, and she goes, well, there's Olivia Newton-John. I said, that is not Olivia. That is Brett Eklund, and that was my heart throb. (laughs) Uh, And she's sitting on uh, behind him on a motorcycle, and she's got a big grin just over his shoulder, and he just has a sly grin that goes, if you're a daredevil, you get them too. Evil lived a... uh a fast life that's for sure um he you know with all his jumps and everything it was uh, um quite a way to make a living um but he uh he lived fast and hard um the rest of his life too so we have kind of an interesting pictures through the museum where in 67 where he really got his start and you see this picture of this guy and he's clean cut he's wearing a suit and then as you go through even just seven or eight years later the pictures he looks like he's aged 20 25 years and we kind of always kind of give that analogy of how presidents age you know when you see an office with all the stress and just everything that goes on in their lives and 
um, yeah, he was aging fast as a young man. Reminded me of Willie Nelson when you saw him first on the Ed Sullivan show. He had on a suit and a sure. little skinny black tie, and then look what he became. Yep. But uh, yeah, yeah, there was always there was a transition for a lot of uh, figures during the those that era, seventies and eighties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. we're, we're tough on people. Yes. Who, as yes. they say, if uh, you remember it, you weren't a part of it. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's parts evil doesn't remember. Well, let's go back to the beginning and uh, his time in Butte and why Butte really hasn't celebrated evil at all. Well, he did grow up in, in Butte, Montana. Um, he was kind of a rebel there, um, got in a lot of trouble. Um, and that's actually where his name came from. Um, his real name was Robert Knievel, Bobby, Bob, um, Robert Craig Knievel. Correct. So Bobby got thrown into jail uh, one night, and there was another guy in town, um, last name Knoffel, that was in town. And uh, he was also kind of a hellraiser and gotten, and and was well-known by the police. So that night, Knoffel was in the, uh, the jail, and, uh, and here comes Bobby in, too, and the... Uh, uh, the jailman famously said, well, it's going to be a long night. We've got awful can awful and evil can evil in here at the same time. <laughs> and uh, that's where it stuck. I mean, and then that's that's where he got his name. And, you know, evil changed it from E-V-I-L to E-V-E-L. Um, you because know, he wasn't too excited about being called evil. No, no, he didn't want to be perceived that way. Um, um, I, you know, I don't think evil ever did anything in his hell-raising times that hurt anybody you know he was just living on the edge at that time you know so it didn't always match up with all the rules in town but it was it was kind of a rough place um because it was a mining town mm -hmm. um, so yeah he did grow up there and um had a house there through all of his career too um so he was always connected to butte and, you know, I did mention earlier, too, that, you know, the Butte connection and, you know, ask about it and why it's not in Butte or why they hadn't done anything. Well, um, I think there's some people in Butte that had, had tried to put something together. And actually, Evil, at one point, tried to put a museum in, in Butte in his later years, but just never got it accomplished and went to city council. And we have some notes from all of that. So we opened this museum up, and one day I get a call from a, a Butte city council hmm. And uh, he uh, he started in on me and uh, was really uh, basically chewing me out about why I decided to put the Evil Knievel Museum in Topeka, Kansas, where it obviously should be in Butte, Montana. Not that I really disagree with him, you know, but uh, um, it's the reason it's in Topeka, Kansas is that that's where I'm from, you know. Right. That's and we did it, you know. So we chose to put it here. And, uh, you know, I explained that to him, but then I said, you know, well, you know, you guys had 40 years to, uh, to put a museum in and you never did it. Um, and he, he replied back, uh, you've got a point. And he, he, he kind of settled down and, uh, became friendly after that. So did you invite him here? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the other the cool part about it is, is the, um, the family's all been here. Um, the only uh, two sons, Robbie, Robbie and, and Kelly, have mm -hmm. both been here, and uh, the daughters have been here too. Um, second wife, Crystal, has been here um, three or four times. The only one that hasn't made it is Linda, his first wife, and she's up in years. Um, I've got to 
um, meet her in Butte. Um, she's a wonderful lady. I, I wish she could make it, um, but she hasn't. But the family uh, has all been very positive about Great. the museum, and that meant a lot to us. And as another point, when we started building this, we thought, oh, man, this is really going to be for their family, and we want them to appreciate it and be happy with it. You know, it would be, we would just feel terrible if they weren't. So that was another kind of motivation to really put all we could into it and, and make it as, as uh, you know, the level of that we hoped it could be and that they would want it uh, too. And you've succeeded. Well, thank you. Well, let's move on to the crescendo of his career. I mean, he kept on doing things more outrageous and more outrageous. Here comes the Snake River jump. Tell me what you know, the good lore about that. Well, first, to your point of crescendo is a great metaphor. And one thing that we have a quote up in the museum, a lot of quotes from evil, but one is, uh, I created evil can evil and then he sort of got away from me. Um, hmm. And the point that I think he was trying to make was, you know, when you're a daredevil and you're always jumping, you know, you got to jump a little further. It's not interesting, you know. And had he not had the crashes and just made all of his all those 168 jumps, um, I don't think he would have been nearly as popular. If he, you know, the crashes are what make you popular. So you want to go. The crowd wants to see something that maybe can't be done, but if it is, it's going to be spectacular. You know, if he makes it. Um, so, and he also said, you know, the crowd didn't come to see me crash, but they didn't want to miss it if I did, <laughs> you know. So, um, that's, that's a, you know, to your point, you know, he had always kind of had to keep out doing himself. And Snake River was the ultimate stunt. And really, you know, some could say even up to now, I mean, even, you know, years later, it's still an amazing um stunt. Yeah, you know, he, he wanted to do the Grand Canyon first, but couldn't get permission. Yeah, and, and uh, what I learned when we were starting the museum was, you know, that, that idea didn't come up um, around, he did the, the Snake River in 74, um, but that didn't come, that came up in like late 60s to jump the Grand Canyon. It was soon after Caesars, and he was sitting in a bar in uh, Montana, um, and one, there was a picture of Grand Canyon on the wall, and one of his buddies said, is that going to be your next jump, Evil, you know, over the Grand Canyon? I think he'd had a few, and he was kind of showing off, and he said, yeah, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to do. Almost became a bar challenge. It was a bar challenge. That's right, Bob. That's, that's kind of what happened. And uh, then, he, then he just kind of talked it up for all these years, like all of the jumps he did from, this, from the late 60s to the... Uh, um, early 70s before the jump it was always promoting that I'm going to do Snake River Canyon so it was just kind of like this one bigger thing you're going to see him jump here but he's going to do this this amazing stunt um, later it took him a few years to get it done uh, he tried to go to the Grand Canyon as you said and uh, the Secretary of Interior um, Mr. Udall um, sent him a note and said you will not be jumping um, the Secretary of the Interior said, well, you will not be jumping the Grand Canyon. We will not approve it. Um, so we had to go somewhere else, and he leased some land in uh, Idaho at Snake River Canyon and uh, famously said, uh, um, you know, they can't, uh, they can't stop me. 
jumping off my own land, and uh, that's you know that's that's what he ended up doing. Was did, did he have land on both sides of the river? Yeah, yeah, he did. That's what I understand. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he he uh, had that land for several years and tried to get the jump off in the early '70s, '72, '73, '74, and they were still trying to develop the rocket. Um, they started with one iteration of it called the X-1, and it was more of a jet-powered rocket. You know, ship had two wheels on it to make it a motorcycle, but um, shot off a ramp, and you sat in it like it was a rocket. The uh, um, He got told about a guy that was a um, um, worked with uh, uh, steam power, and his name was uh, Bob Truex. And Bob... Uh, came along and said, I think you should do this with steam. Uh, so what a lot of people don't know is that rocket that Evo launched off of uh, that ramp was powered by water. Um, and uh, what they did is they heated it up to about 600 degrees and it was in a big canister in there. And basically just pulled the plug and he's just along for the ride. To me, it, looked, it reminded me of the V-1 bomber uh, that uh, the Nazis used in World War II. That's very, it's a very similar thing. Um, concept yeah yeah it's a great that's a great analogy and um, you know effectively it, it worked it was a good setup um, but it took them several years to try to figure this out they spent a ton of money um, testing um, they actually took the X1 brought the press out set the ramp up at Snake River and said they were going to do a test shot um, without him in it without him in it had a dummy in it and uh, intentionally underpowered it so that it wouldn't even come close to going over the river and shot it off and it just, you know, went a little ways and went into the river. And it was all a promotion right. um, to, to try to show how dangerous this was and that it wasn't just an easy thing that they were going to shoot over. So um, he then had two rockets made. He had the um, two of the X-2s made, but it was secret that there were two um, two of these rockets. They were identical pieces, but one was a test rocket and one was the one he was going to go in. So about a month before the jump, um, they, they staged it again, but they didn't have any press there. And the promotion team uh, that was promoting this whole event said, if people see a successful jump, you know, with this test, we're going to knock half your um, money off. Yeah, yeah we're going to knock half your money off. We're going to only pay mm -hmm. half of what we promised. Um, so they did it in secret, um, and this thing was supposed to make it, and it fizzled too, and went right in the river. Now, is that the one you have downstairs? That is the one we have. Mm -hmm. um, so we have the 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 test rocket. Um, like I said, it's identical to the one he went in. Um, the Knievels have the other. Uh, rocket, so it's still in shape too. Evil um, took the second one and did a little bit of uh, restoration work on it um, to tour with it in the in the 90s. Um, ours has not been touched, um, so it's it kind of has the original paint and everything. Uh, so it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty cool to look at, but it's just a tin can with a big canister in it. Um, water, water, and nothing really to drive it. I mean, it's just a it's just a full-on ride so when that one went in the river evil was a little bit worried <laughs> he was worried anyway but then he was like uh this is not good um he had planned to make it and could see that it wasn't a given that he was going to make it so 
um, when it came time for the actual jump, uh, he was really, really, he thought he was going to die. Was there a rescue team down at the bottom? There was a rescue team. Um, the problem was that the system, uh, the six-point harness that he wore in there, and, you know, they had to strap him in really tight because the G-forces mm -hmm. were launching off there. They discovered about a week before the jump, and they test fit him in it, and they set him on the jump, put him in. They've, they've found that he could not get out of the straps himself. Um, so he, if he'd have gone in the river, he'd have drowned. He'd have drowned. So they, they decided, well, we got to get a different set of straps, a different suit where it attaches to his suit. So they took his jet, and they had the company that made his suit in Los Angeles redo the suit and put the, the D-rings in a different spot so he could access them and get out of his suit if he needed to if it goes in the water. Well, fast forward to jump day. And here's evil. It's a huge pomp and circumstances with the with the jump. Gigantic crowd. Wide uh, world of sports. Wide world of sports. Um, pay, close circuit pay per view in in uh, arenas all over the country, which was one of the first of its kind. Bob Arum. Bob Arum. Uh, that's correct. Um, promoter w did it. Boxing uh, promoter. Boxing promoter. Vince McMahon was also part of the promotion team on this. Uh, that's interesting. Um, it was ten dollars to get in to, uh, like, Municipal Auditorium in Topeka mm -hmm. showed it. Um, and then $10 was just an incredible yeah. amount of money to go, you know, buy a ticket to go see this. But this was how big an event it was. So the jump day comes around, marching band. It's like Woodstock out there with all these people. And uh, they lower Evil in with a crane into the to the rocket. Um, um He's does the national anthem, you know, prior to that and um, says a few words. But once he gets lowered in, his crew starts buckling him in and getting him ready. And uh, once they got to that point, one of the crewmen said, Evil, you put on the wrong suit. Mm. You put on the suit that you can't get out of. And uh, I don't think Evil was going to get back out, go back down to Big Red, you know, start the whole process over. And he said, "Too late now." Um, you don't think he had a death wish? He didn't. Uh, he did not have a death wish. No, he did not. He just what a way to go out. It, it, and it would have, but uh, no, he didn't. He wanted to make it. Um, he wanted to live. He he was not intent on dying that day, um, but he thought he was going to. Back to the, what we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, he gave his word. He had all those people there. He wasn't going to back out. Um, he had reason to. He saw the the rocket, you know, go right into the river. He had the wrong suit on. If he went in the river, he dies. There's it, there was rescue people there, but they would not have been able to get him out. Oh, it's in time. fast running river. Fast running river. And uh, so what it, what happened was, um, got down to the countdown. We have another quote in there. Um, he it says uh, when it came to the end of the countdown, I. Um, pushed the button and said, God, here I come, um, because he thought he was pushing the button to to his ultimate demise. Mm -hmm. So the, it launched, amazing amount of power, um, shot off. What happened was there was a, uh, a piece in the back of the, uh, there was a drogue chute that would shoot out first and then pull the, the massive parachute out. The metal 
I'm going to call it kind of an O-ring that sat in the back of the of the um, rocket, blew out and crumpled up, and we actually have it on display in in the museum. And it when it popped out, it pulled the drogue chute out, and that happened with the force of the uh, of the uh, the steam just shooting out the back of the rocket, just blew this thing off. And it's a result of just not being able to test. They kind of had run out of money and they hadn't done enough testing. And uh, it it shot off and the parachute was out as it was exiting the, the, the launch ramp. So it it had plenty of power. He actually made it across, even with the chute pulling him back. But there was a strong wind. They almost didn't right. go that day because the wind was blowing in his face. Um, they went ahead and went for that. Too. Remember that? It just blew him backwards. And it blew him backwards. So it just floated back. And uh, he landed literally 10 feet from the water on the edge of the river. But on the side where he took off from. Correct. It had blown him back to that side of the river um, and landed in some rocks. Um, got a little bit cut up, bruised up, but... He survived, and had he hit the river, right. he would have passed in uh, drowning. So, uh, just one more piece of luck. I mean, really, there's no he was no guiding it. It just floated down, and he was just at its mercy. He was trying to get out. He couldn't get out um, because of the, the straps. So, what was the media take on the event after it was over? There's there was a lot of. Uh, controversy I think you know the the media kind of said uh, there was one story that he got scared and pulled the chute um, there was another that he um, you know he blacked out and what he had was a dead man switch so his hand was on it and if it shot out and he was and he was unconscious and his hand went limp that would activate the chute so so, so he had an ejection switch it was just a it was a, a lever on an, on that he held with his hand and if his hand went limp it would have opened up and it would have ejected the chute so there's people that said well the, the concussion from the jump you know he, he didn't get to practice this mm -hmm. um, you know he's that slipped out of his hand but for me um, I don't think it's either one of those um, I truly think it was a malfunction just by looking at the piece of metal, it's all warped that was tied to the parachute. I mean, that happened. I mean, I think it, that wasn't from him pulling it back. It wouldn't have mangled like that. So I think it was, um, it ended up being a, a malfunction, but he got accused of, you know, um, almost trying to say that he conned it, you know, that it was a con, mm -hmm. but this guy got in there, he launched 300 mile an hour into the sky, not knowing what was gonna happen. I don't care. If if you think that he did something, he still did it. You know, he still got on there and pushed the button. So, um, I, but I think he looked at himself as that it was a success because he lived. Did he take some time off after that? He did. He did a little bit, but not a, not a long time. Um, he was he had kind of lost a little bit of favor because of that jump and and the way the media was treating him. So he wanted to get back, and that's when he went back to. Uh, the next jump was London, and uh, Wembley. Wembley was the next jump. So he got back in the saddle. Um, that was uh, uh, within a year. Um, he was he was back to jumping. So um, yeah, he the the um, Snake River jump is what everybody knows of him. Um, you, it, it was an amazing event. 
I just don't know if there's many events now, you know, maybe the Super Bowl where everybody yeah. gathers around. Not with, not with individuals. With an individual, yeah, where everybody gathers around. And the point, too, Bob, is that you had to be there because we didn't have DVR or VHS or um, recorded or, you know, if you're going to watch it, that your only chance was to be there at that point. So people were um, scheduling their day around that to see that event, and that's what they did. They all sat down, and um, it was an incredibly huge audience. Kind of a perfect time in technology and how far television and distribution had gotten, allowing him to you know, rent out theaters and things like that, but you couldn't get it any other way. I mean, they controlled that. Now, with social media and there are cameras everywhere, something like that wouldn't occur. No, and, uh, no, it would not, it would not uh, work. So it was the perfect time for evil. It was the perfect time for that. Um, it was just magic that happened with this guy. Um, and I don't think it could have happened before or a decade before or a decade after. You know. How did he wind down his career? Well, after the Wembley jump, um, he crashed. It was so bad. And he, they, like you said before, they walked him to the top of the ramp. And he said that day, he said, uh, you've seen the last jump by Evil Knievel. He goes, I will never, ever, ever, ever jump again. He would have just said one more ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't enough. Nope. Wasn't even six months later. Um, he was jumping at Kings Island. And uh, he came on, on TV to promote it, and he said, uh, you know, I know I said I was retiring, but that was the pain talking. And I tried to jump 13 buses in England, and that's an unlucky number, so I'm going to jump 14 in, uh, at Kings <laughs> Island. And what that did, the guy's smart. Um, he, that created the largest audience for Wild World of Sports ever to this day. Kings wow. Island was the number one watched and when they look at it, over half the households in the U.S. were watching that day when they look at the stats. Um, because, you know, they were sure he might crash on this one. He actually made it. Um, he did a couple of more jumps, and one in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, he did a, a jump in Chicago, the shark jump, uh, that didn't end up good because he crashed in practice, um, didn't actually get to do the jump. He jumped in the kingdom. And that was kind of his final, he was not jumping a lot and he was jumping not quite as far. Um, it was, it would hit Warren on him pretty hard, but he was still trying to get out there and be relevant. Um, his last fling was with his son, Robbie, where he was trying to pass the torch and they went on what they called the world tour where Robbie was jumping with him. And they did a few jumps and they were going to go to Australia and Puerto Rico and they did a few in Florida. Um, and it kind of just fizzled, and they they called it quits, and that was it. So that was that was the end of evil. Well, what a what a career, what a life! It almost makes you want to say, only in America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had uh, roller coasters named after him, toys, of course, <laughs> pinball machines, and a rock opera. Yeah, <laughs> really bad. You don't want to see that rock opera. It was really bad. Um, movies. Um, we play the movies. We're actually sitting in the movie theater right here. Um, George Hamilton played George him. Hamilton played him. Uh, he played himself in 1977 when he played Viva Knievel. And uh, 
I'll say he was a better jumper than he was an actor. Um, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Another interesting uh, thing that a lot of people don't know is that there was a TV pilot that came out uh, called Evil Knievel. And uh, it only had one episode, and the guy playing him was Sam Elliott. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Love his voice. Yeah. And he was a young Sam Elliott. So, you know, you see him, you can kind of hear the voice. It's not quite as deep and slow. Um, and he had he didn't have gray hair. You know, he had uh, dark hair. But, yeah, he played evil. It was only uh, one show. And the TV network people decided not to do it because they were afraid that too many kids would try to emulate evil and they would be causing injury to kids. So that's why it got knocked off. Um, actually, for me, the the, the um, George Hamilton movie or the Viva Knievel, the TV show, I mean, with Sam Elliott, it was actually a better actor. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, George Hamilton's a great actor, for sure. But uh, um, it was a good show. I mean, it, it was like, it was entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it almost didn't work because it wasn't evil. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it wasn't evil. And, um, you know, it was kind of corny too you know but that's 70s tv shows were corny right you know so it's fun to watch now and you can watch it in our museum we have clips of all three movies um playing about five minutes each of each one and so you can get the flavor of it and see sam elliott and george hamilton playing evil knievel and evil himself well we could go on but uh this museum to our audience it's a destination so do yourself a favor come to topeka spend half a day here you will not regret it. Mike, I want to thank you very much for taking the time and doing this. This is Bob Ford and... Mike Patterson. And we're with History, Mystery, and Lore. We are keeping history going, so you will pass it on. Thank you again. Awesome. Speaking of passing history on, pass us on. If you like these interviews and have family or friends that enjoy history, rate us, Google us, or send them to B-O-B-F-O-R-D-S, history, mystery, and lore, dot simplecast.com. That's no punctuations other than the two dots on either side of Simplecast. There are dozens of episodes already in the can and headed your way. So pass us on and let us continue to make history. Thank you.